noise of music amplified so mightily that it knocked a china ornament from a table to the floor. She rushed to the instrument and reduced the volume. The violent forces that were snared in the ugly gumwood cabinet made her uneasy. Her children came home from school then, and she took them to the park. It was not until later in the afternoon that she was able to return to the radio. The maid had given the children their suppers and was supervising their baths when Irene turned on the radio, reduced the volume, and sat down to listen to a Mozart quintet that she knew and enjoyed. The music came through clearly. The new instrument had a much purer tone, she thought, than the old one. She decided that tone was most important and that she could conceal the cabinet behind a sofa. But as soon as she had made her peace with the radio, the interference began. A crackling sound, like the noise of a burning powder fuse, began to accompany the singing of the strings. Beyond the music, there was a rustling that reminded Irene unpleasantly of the sea. And as the quintet progressed, these noises were joined by many others. She tried all the dials and switches, but nothing dimmed the interference, and she sat down, disappointed and bewildered, and tried to trace the flight of the melody. The elevator shaft in her building ran beside the living room wall, and it was the noise of the elevator that gave her a clue to the character of the static. The rattling of the elevator cables and the opening and closing of the elevator doors were reproduced in her loudspeaker. And, realizing that the radio was sensitive to electrical currents of all sorts, she began to discern through the Mozart the ringing of telephone bells, the dialing of phones, and the lamentation of a vacuum cleaner. By listening more carefully, she was able to distinguish doorbells, elevator bells, electric razors, and wearing mixers, whose sounds had been picked up from the apartments that surrounded hers and transmitted through her loudspeaker. The powerful and ugly instrument, with its mistaken sensitivity to discord, was more than she could hope to master. So she turned the thing off and went into the nursery to see her children. When Jim Westcott came home that night, he went to the radio confidently and worked the controls. He had the same sort of experience Irene had had. A man was speaking on the station Jim had chosen, and his voice swung instantly from the distance into a force so powerful that it shook the apartment. Jim turned the volume control and reduced the voice. Then, a minute or two later, the interference began. The ringing of telephones and doorbells set in, joined by the rasp of the elevator doors and the whir of cooking appliances. The character of the noise had changed since Irene had tried the radio earlier. The last of the electric razors was being unplugged, the vacuum cleaners had all been returned to their closets, and the static reflected that change in pace that overtakes the city after the sun goes down. He fiddled with the knobs, but couldn't get rid of the noises, so he turned the radio off and told Irene that in the morning he'd call the people who had sold it to him and give them hell. The following afternoon, when Irene returned to the apartment from a luncheon date, the maid told her that a man had come and fixed the radio. Irene went into the living room before she took off her hat or her furs and tried the instrument. 
From the loudspeaker came a recording of the Missouri Waltz. It reminded her of the thin, scratchy music from an old-fashioned phonograph that she sometimes heard across the lake where she spent her summers. She waited until the waltz had finished, expecting an explanation of the recording, but there was none. The music was followed by silence, and then the plaintive and scratchy record was repeated. She turned the dial and got a satisfactory burst of Caucasian music, the thump of bare feet in the dust and the rattle of coin jewelry. But in the background she could hear the ringing of bells and a confusion of voices. Her children came home from school then, and she turned off the radio and went into the nursery. When Jim came home that night, he was tired, and he took a bath and changed his clothes. Then he joined Irene in the living room. He had just turned on the radio when the maid announced dinner, so he left it on, and he and Irene went to the table. Jim was too tired to make even a pretense of sociability, and there was nothing about the dinner to hold Irene's interest, so her attention wandered from the food to the deposits of silver polish on the candlesticks, and from there to the music in the other room. She listened for a few minutes to a Chopin prelude, and then was surprised to hear a man's voice break in. For Christ's sake, Kathy, he said, do you always have to play the piano when I get home? The music stopped abruptly. It's the only chance I have, a woman said. I'm at the office all day. So am I, the man said. He added something obscene about an upright piano and slammed a door. The passionate and melancholy music began again. Did you hear that? Irene asked. What? Jim was eating his dessert. The radio. A man said something while the music was still going on, something dirty. That's probably a play. I don't think it is a play, Irene said. They left the table and took their coffee into the living room. Irene asked Jim to try another station. He turned the knob. Have you seen my garters? A man asked. Button me up, a woman said. Have you seen my garters? The man said again. Just button me up and I'll find your garters, the woman said. Jim shifted to another station. I wish you wouldn't leave apple cores in the ashtrays, a man said. I hate the smell. This is strange, Jim said. Isn't it? Irene said. Jim turned the knob again. On the coast of Coromandel, where the early pumpkins blow, a woman with a pronounced English accent said, In the middle of the woods lived the youngy bongy bow, two old chairs and half a candle, one old jug without a handle. My God, Irene cried, that's the Sweeney's nurse. These were all his worldly goods, the British voice continued. Turn that thing off, Irene said. <gasps> Maybe they can hear us. Jim switched the radio off. That was Miss Armstrong, the Sweeney's nurse, Irene said. She must be reading to the little girl. They live in 7B. I've talked with Miss Armstrong in the park. I know her voice very well. We must be getting other people's apartment. That's impossible. 
impossible, <laughs> Jim said. Well, that was the Sweeney's nurse, Irene said hotly. I know her voice. I know it very well. I'm wondering if they can hear us. Jim turned the switch. First from a distance, and then nearer. Nearer, as if borne on the wind, came the pure accents of the Sweeney's nurse again. Lady Jingly, Lady Jingly, she said, sitting where the pumpkins blow. Will you come and be my wife, said the Yonge Bongi Bo. Jim went over to the radio and said, Hello, loudly into the speaker. I'm tired of living singly, the nurse went on, on this coast so wild and shingly. I'm a weary of my life. If you'll come and be my wife, quite serene would be my life. I guess she can't hear us, Irene said. Try something else. Jim turned to another station, and the living room was filled with the uproar of a cocktail party that had overshot its mark. Someone was playing the piano and singing the Whiffenpoof song, and the voices that surrounded the piano were vehement and happy. Eat some more sandwiches, a woman shrieked. There were screams of laughter, and a dish of some sort crashed to the floor. Those must be the Fullers in 11E, Irene said. I knew they were giving a party this afternoon. I saw her in the liquor store. Isn't this too divine? Try something else. See if you can get those people in 18C. The Westcotts overheard that evening a monologue on salmon fishing in Canada, a bridge game, running comments on home movies of what had apparently been a fortnight at Sea Island, and a bitter family quarrel about an overdraft at the bank.